0: Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, church, how we doing, everybody? Good, okay, all right, it's steady, and you're like, it's gonna be like 100 degrees today. Leave me alone, I get it, it's summertime. My name's Peter, I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, if in case you heard some people allude to uh, my back being better, and you're new with us, you don't know what all of that is about. Uh, last week, I was, it was a very sad state of affairs uh, as I was here, and uh, I was sitting on a, a chair to preach, which was fine, um, but in between services, what you guys didn't see was me backstage, like Jeff got a foam roller for me, I'm like rolling on the foam concrete floor backstage and like laying flat. And I was just like, Jeff, I hope I could do this. Like it was sad. It was real sad. Um, so I'm standing today, I'm feeling much better. So thanks for the uh, the prayers, the advice, the counsel, the creams, all of the things that everybody uh, recommended and all that stuff. I am uh, I am feeling much, much better. But a um, couple of things, like Pastor Jeff said, uh, in the lobby, that that VBS board oh need, uh, as it were, um, the most helpful thing you could do for us for VBS is twofold. One is um, if you can, if you want to volunteer and kind of tow the waters in service, you could sign up for that through our app on the website. But then two, if we could get every single one of those tags taken off of that board out there, that'd be incredibly helpful to us uh, financially um, as well. And then the other thing, speaking of finances, it's June, which means a lot of people want to go on vacation. That's great. I love vacation because I get it. We live in a place that's like 100,000 degrees. Um, but what happens is, is that people go on vacation. Oftentimes, you take your tithe with you, um, and that's okay. Um, that being said, just if, you, if this is a place that you would call home, if this is a place that you would say, yeah, I'm a member here, I'm a regular tender here, or whatever, and you contribute financially with us regularly, we would ask that you do your best to try to keep that up over the summer it's funny, we see consistent church trends, um, every like year over year giving trends. It's like, we're doing pretty good. May happens, all of a sudden June happens, and we just bottom out uh, completely and totally. And so um, if you are a member here or a regular attender, we would ask that you would uh, continue to keep that up as your uh, your act of worship. But... All that to be said, we're continuing in Mark, so we're going to be in Mark 3 today. So if you want to open your Bibles, you can open on your device on Mark chapter 3 uh, as well. And as you do that, uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about my family dynamics as I was growing up. I don't think I ever realized how lucky I was to have the family that I had. I didn't realize that probably until I was in high school, maybe college, a little bit later, looking back at my family dynamic and thinking, man, I had it pretty good. I had it pretty good. I mean, first and foremost, my parents didn't get a divorce, um, and so I know that is more and more rare these days. So I had a stable mother figure and a stable father figure in my house all of all of the time um it, growing up the majority of our dinners happened around a dinner table as we talked about uh you know how our day went and we all sat in the same chairs at every single meal because apparently we were baptists at home too um and so because that, i was like no i gotta sit in this this is my spot um and if it wasn't my spot someone's in my spot we were gonna have words um but uh but we did that. Anything extracurricular I wanted to do, I always got an opportunity to do. So like mom and dad, if I wanted to try something out, they're like, yeah, sure, try it out. Like at one point I was like, I think I want to do tap dance. It's my secret shame, guys. I, I've never said it from stage. I want to project myself as an athlete. But one time I was like, you know what, I, I think I want to give acting and tap and jazz a try. That's, that seems like the right path for my life. Um, I lasted like four months, and I was like, I hate this. I hate every part of this. Um, but, uh, but my parents let me try it. Like, they supported me in, in that. And like, so through sports, through, through college, through all of these different things, like, I was always, you know, supportive. If I ever needed help with my homework, which was always on a nightly basis, I needed help with my homework, especially in eighth grade algebra, because I'm terrible at mathing. Um, and uh, my parents were always like, yep, we'll help you. And my dad also was not good at algebra. And so my dad happened to be my algebra teacher's best friend. And so <laughs> I guarantee my algebra teacher was like waiting for Peter's phone call at eight o'clock at night from Peter's dad. Hey, how do you do number seven on the home? You know, whatever. Um, but they like supported me and helped me uh, in that. I could always bring friends over. Like my dad called them strays. Like we're collecting strays, right? And, and like our house was open to them, our fridge was open. To them, you guys know that house. My dad would always be okay if we asked, "Hey, can so and so stay the night?" He'd be like, "Yeah, absolutely." And there were Saturday mornings that looked like a bomb went off in our living room because there's bodies laying everywhere, right? Like, yeah, we had like 14 friends stay the night. And my dad consistently would say, "Like, where else would I rather them be than safe in my home on a on a Friday night?" And so, uh, so like, I had a, I was very lucky to have the family. That I did, and I think that uh, if I raise my kids in the same way that I my, myself and my brother were raised, I think they have a good shot at at knowing Jesus and walking with the Lord as well. Because every single Sunday we were in church, right? Every single Sunday it was a rarity for us not to be in church on a Sunday morning. I remember one Sunday I woke up and it was like it's kind of late to be waking up for Sunday morning for church, um, and uh, I walked out and there was also a, a pink donut box sitting on the counter. I was like, oh my gosh we're not going to church this Sunday. This is crazy, like a <laughs> party on Sunday morning at the Anderson's. Um, but, th- but that was a normal thing for us to, to be there. And it wasn't until like high school and college where I started to realize that not only was I lucky to be in the family that I was, but I also started to realize that other people really respected my mom and my dad as well. You know, they started to get asked to serve on different boards, church boards, financial boards, all of these different things. People were calling my dad for wisdom uh, about you know a, a slew of different things, some of which spiritual and that sort of thing. And so, um, I don't think I realized how lucky I was. Like I said, until until later on. And, and and so, growing up, we had our issues like like every other every other family, especially me and my brother and my mom and dad. They of course got into arguments and that sort of thing. Like all all parents do. Uh, but growing up, thinking about my life, my family was incredibly special, and I want to, to put that blueprint on my family as well, to think that my kids could invite their friends over at any point and like, yep, absolutely, why wouldn't we have them over, right? Why wouldn't we use our house for these different things? Um, I don't know where, what, what your family dynamic looks like. Maybe it's your current family dynamic, maybe you're in the, the midst of raising kids right now just like my wife and I are, or maybe thinking back to your family dynamic whatever it may have been. Because I know for some of you, some of you are very lucky to have a family, uh, a, a good family, like, like my family was. And, and some of you, you know, probably aren't as lucky. You know, maybe you... Uh, your parents maybe got a divorce or you went through a divorce and so you're trying to figure that out with your kids and that sort of thing and, and that's difficult. That can be that can be hard and unstabilizing sometimes the family. As hard as you may try, that can obviously be difficult. Maybe a lot of you are in here, I think actually most of you are in here because of family for one reason or another. Either your family brought you to church so regularly that you recognize it was very important in your life, or two Maybe it was because your family was never in church, and so because of that, you were going to change your family tree, uh, change the trajectory of your family by getting your family into church in one way um, or, or another. But I want you to think for a second about your family. Think about how you were raised, maybe how you grew up, because so much stock in Western culture is put into your flesh and blood family. Your family that you have. In our society, most societies around the world, family is everything. Actually, throughout history, family is everything. It's played a major role in everyone's life. From the very beginning, the concept of family has always existed. When God created the world, right, everything was good except one thing. Adam was alone. And God saw he was alone. This isn't good. So I'm going to yank a rib out. I'm going to create Eve. Boom. First Family. And so family was God's design, family was God's uh, uh, creation, and, and this work of creating a family was going to be one of the biggest blessings to all of mankind, to everybody. They were going to be a family unit to work together, serving and loving God and loving one another. And then to take it a step further, man, families are essential, they are the, the, the building blocks of communities, right? And communities are the building blocks of nations. We've said that before. You want to serve your community well? Start by serving your home well, because homes will then serve neighborhoods and neighborhoods, towns, and towns, states, and states, countries, and countries, the entire world. So where do you start? You start at home with your family. But if Genesis taught us that God created the family, Genesis chapter 3 also has taught us that Satan wants to do his best to destroy that family family as well, because almost as quickly as Eve was created, Satan slithered in and did his best best to put the family under attack. And so all over the world, and to some degree, all of us here, even though we all have different histories, whether it's cultural or, or economic or religious or social backgrounds or whatever it may be, families are a massive deal. And as many of us have experienced, Family, familial relationships, loyalty, and honor have a massive weight and influence on our lives. Well, that's why Sarah and I, when, when our kids get dropped off somewhere, we try to say, you know who you are and whose you are, right? You are an Anderson. And beyond the fact that you are an Anderson, you are a Christian. You are Jesus's. And so we want them to remember, anything that you say or do is not only a reflection on Jesus, but it's also a reflection on the Anderson name, Right? So, reputation has everything to do with, uh, with family as well. And so, back in the time of Jesus, the Jewish family actually had this extra added spiritual significance as well. So, think back to the Old Testament. There is one group of people considered to be children of God, you had to be Jewish. And so the Jewish family, not only everything we already talked about was a big deal, but beyond that, the Jewish family, also you being born into a Jewish family, also meant you were born into the family of God. So there's this added kind of weight and added kind of, kind of pressure to this as well. The Jewish family was actually kind of like the local expression of the larger Jewish, uh, Jewish nation, You were who you were in God's kingdom because of your family. So, as a family member, you weren't supposed to abandon or disrespect your family. That was a big deal. That's one of the reasons that the the parable of the prodigal son, right? A lot of you probably know the parable of the prodigal son. And even as we look at it today, you know, in short, there's this son who wants to leave. Essentially, he asks his dad, hey, dad, I pretty much want you dead because I want your money rather than your time. And so because of that, he says, dad, can I have my inheritance? He goes off, squanders away the inheritance. The dad waits for him to, to come back. He comes back. It's a party, the whole thing. But that story, even today, is a hard story for us to read. Like, how would I reconcile my own kids with this? How would me and my kid reconcile that? But in this time, in that day and age, in Jewish culture, that story would have been absolutely shocking. And so one of the expectations of the Jewish family was to have a Passover meal together. Think about Christmas for you guys maybe right? And and, and less expectation and less, you know, Jewish law and tradition and all that stuff. But think about your family at Christmas time. I know for my family at Christmas time, uh, you know, we had to get done with church. We had to do the church thing because we were good Christians. So we went to church and then after church is when Christmas started, right? We got there and, and grandma and grandpa's house and the cousins were there. We're sleeping at the foot of grandma and grandpa's bed and grandma is snoring and she's blaming it on grandpa, like the whole thing, right? And it was great. and it was, it, it was awesome. I looked forward to it every single year. And there was an expectation that if you were a part of our family, our extended family at that point, you showed up to grandma and grandpa's house on Christmas, because if somebody didn't, something was wrong. Okay? This, is, this is to a greater extent in the Jewish culture and the Jewish uh, family at that time. So I say all of this because Jesus today in Mark chapter three is going to flip this entire thing on its head. This is one of the hardest passages that I've had to deal with and preach through and reconcile in my own heart, okay? And so we're gonna deal a little bit with Jesus' family, we're gonna deal a little bit with Pharisees, and we're gonna land with Jesus' family again, but we're gonna kick it off in Mark 3, verses 20 to 21. It says, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. That's fun, right? Anybody ever like, oh, man, my family had to come and they thought I was crazy, right? Like, that's what's going on right now. Okay, Jesus' family at this point is going to take him away, to take charge of him, to take him away because they thought he is out of his mind. So... Let's back up. Jesus is teaching again, and more people show up again. Like I said last week, this is going to be the pattern over and over and over again. People not only want to hear what Jesus has to say, they also want to see what miracles he is going to perform. They want to bring sick people to him. So everywhere he goes, as soon as someone hears that Jesus is in town, they're going to flock to wherever... Um, wherever he is. And so it appears that this crowd and Jesus were so intense that Jesus and his disciples weren't able to eat. It doesn't say why. I don't know if there wasn't enough food. I don't know if it was standing room only. And so because of that, they couldn't balance their little plates right here and do finger foods or whatever. Like, I don't know why they couldn't eat, but we just know that they, uh, they couldn't eat. But as I, was, as I was doing my research for this, I found kind of two interpretations as to why Jesus' family wanted to take him. What Two things that they could have been Concerned about the first one is, is they were concerned for Jesus's physical health, his physical well-being, because man, Jesus from the point that Mark started, right? Man, we are seeing like crowds are consistently pushing in on him. Like he doesn't even have food to eat in this story, but crowds are pushing in on him. We know crowds can be tumultuous. Think back to Black Friday sales ten years ago, right? Like everybody wants a flat-screen TV to save two hundred dollars. It doesn't matter if you're going to prison or not for it right? Like, like crowds can just be crazy. When people want to get to something more than anything else, it can be crazy. So there's this idea that maybe they are concerned with Jesus's, uh, Jesus's well-being, that like being constantly mobbed by crowds to the point of hindering his basic necessities of life. That's the first theory. I don't agree with the first theory very much, Okay, But I I do want to take a second, before I share the second theory with you, I do want to just take a second and and think, okay, if if you personally were, were a disciple of Jesus, and you were writing all of these stories down, you and the Holy Spirit are working together, and you really wanted to convince people that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that, man, put your faith in this guy, and he's going to take care of everything, would you write a story like this Would you write words that say that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind, that Jesus' family was coming to take control of him? No, you wouldn't even say that about yourself in an autobiography that you're writing today, right? There's no reason you would say that because you don't want people to think poorly about you. And if you're trying to convince others of Jesus, why would you include this story unless it was true? So stories like this where it kind of casts like a, I don't want to say a bad light because Jesus ultimately lands the plane really well at the end of this entire thing, but it does cast some doubts like, wait, is this guy actually a lunatic? Like, is this guy actually insane at this point? So the second theory as to to why Jesus' family kind of opposed him, um, really it has everything to do with their own reputation making sure that the familial name wasn't tarnished at that, at that point. They're concerned about their reputation because they had probably thought that Jesus was acting in a way that would bring some shame and probably some gossip around the water well. You know what I mean? Like, did you hear about, did you hear about Mary's boy? That guy is not acting right. He's going around claiming to exercise demons. He said he's healing some people. Actually, last week, him and his buddies they put a hole in Peter's family's roof. Did you hear about that? Like they are acting out of their mind right now, right? Like this is probably what they are more concerned about, like this madness. So the family was concerned for both Jesus's, you know, health, but more likely they're concerned about their reputation. And let's be real, if you're a parent, you've been there, Right? Like, if you aren't concerned with what stories your kids are telling your teachers about you, how are you actually a parent? Right? Like, when our kids were going to public school, man, I was terrified. I was like, my kids are going to tell a story that doesn't accurately represent who our family actually is, and they're going to think real bad things about us. Right? Going into parent-teacher conferences, I'm just like waiting for them to say, you know... As we were sitting down, Cooper had mentioned, "Blah blah blah." like, no, it's not true, right? Teachers, I'm sure you can preach to that effect of like, man, my kids tell me some crazy, crazy stuff. So there's concern there. And I don't blame their family completely. A lot of this stuff is probably out of character from who Jesus, how Jesus was acting in the first place, how Jesus had acted when he had grown up. And now all of a sudden he's healing people and exercising demons and all of that, all of that stuff. And so the family evidently intended to take Jesus and force him to return to Nazareth with them. That was their goal. Like, we're going to take him home. We're going to ground him to his room. The Greek says here that these people thought Jesus was insane. That's the Greek word, not out of his mind, insane. And insane people were shielded from public view at that point because they were seen as a source of shame for the family, so, hey, this is all about reputation. This is all about preserving our good family name. But it keeps going, and it's going to change. The story is going to change slightly here, because then we have the antagonists of the book of Mark show up again, the religious teachers. It says in Mark 3:22, it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons." So at this point, Jesus' ministry had gotten the attention of the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Notice what it says in 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. This was intentional. They weren't just like randomly walking along with be like, oh, what? Jesus is here too? That's crazy. No, that wasn't like they intentionally came down. They, apparently, they had been sent by the Sanhedrin, the bigwigs, the, the major religious leaders of the time to watch him and to undermine his influence if they could. And so notice, in all of these stories, they never, these religious leaders, never, ever deny Jesus's power. They never, ever deny the fact that that Jesus performed any of these miracles. And they couldn't, right? Because everybody saw the miracles. Everybody saw what was going on. So they didn't want to, they didn't want to trap him that way. They were going to try to discredit Jesus by talking about the fact that he broke tradition or, or, or he's going against established religious law or today that he's demon-possessed. So they just go over and over and just try to discredit him in whatever way that he possibly can. So their official judgment was, he's not right, he's possessed by Satan. And it's crazy to me one of the most prominent miracles that Jesus performed, and we've seen it in all these stories that we've covered so far in the book of Mark. It says, Jesus went, he healed people and he cast out demons. Right? It says this over and over and over again. He healed people and he cast out demons. That like these religious officials, they should have celebrated this. They should have been excited about this because a tormented person is freed and healed, but they didn't. They condemn him. And so Jesus isn't having it. And he takes these guys to school, starting in verse 23. It says, so Jesus called them over to him. He's like, hey, you guys, come here, right? You know that's never a good sign when they do the finger thing. And began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Okay, we're gonna get to 29 in a second because everybody automatically wants to know, wait, what's that unforgivable unfor- sin? Jesus said there's an eternal sin? Hold on, what is that? Did I accidentally do that? We'll get to that in a second. We're gonna cover the first part of this though. So Jesus never once dismisses the existence of Satan. He recognizes that there's a real kingdom of evil. Jesus here replies by showing how ridiculous this accusation was, and he tells three different parables. The first one he talks about this divided kingdom, in verse twenty-four. Where he's talking about how could, how would Satan work against himself? You think our best? You think Satan's best plan is to start picking off his own demons? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Right, so Jesus goes through and he does verse 24, divided kingdom, verse 25, divided house, and verse 27, the binding of the strong man by a stronger one. The strong man in verse 27 is Satan. The stronger one is Jesus, in case you're trying to land that plane. Jesus, who is in the process of tying up Satan and carrying off his possessions one by one by exercising demons. Okay? That's, the, that's the, the meaning of that. But then after the parables, which all of us can look and be like, yeah, those parables are short because they make sense. It's just, it's easy, right? So after, after those parables, we get back to the landing point, the real point that Jesus is trying to make here. And we're not going to look overlook the truth of 28 because verse 28 is really what we as Christians need to be hanging our hat on on a regular basis. So verse 28, if you read back through... It says truly I tell you people can be forgiven all their sins and every and excuse me and every slander they utter. Don't read to 29 yet. Let's stop in 28. Let's rest in 28. Because oftentimes what we do is we jump to 29. We jump to this idea of okay, so that's good all of my sins can be forgiven. Up until what point though? Like how far am I allowed to go before I actually sin? Like where's that line? In the sand, can someone draw that? And I'm going to get just—I'm just, just going to cuddle up right next to that line, as close as I possibly can, as long as I know I'm still going to heaven. Rather than resting in verse 28, looking at this idea that, that that Jesus has forgiven every single one of our sins, every single one of our trespasses, and I should be living in such a way that honors that. I should be living in such a way that recognizes that Jesus did that for me in my life, over and over and over again. We should be looking in. In this direction, as we look at Jesus, as we look at his righteousness and what he did, it should take us away from that line that so many of us seem to be concerned with. So many of us seem to be concerned with, ah, well, like, like how close can I get, right? It would come up every time when I was a youth pastor, right? We would do a, a series on sex and relationships, and a small group after small group after small group with boys, like, okay, how far can I go with a girl until it's too far? Like every single time, right? Because they're like, I'm going to slam up against that line as hard as I possibly can. Like, let me find that line and I'll stay there as long as Jesus is still going to forgive me with that, right? Over and over. And and we think it's silly now, right? Like you you guys can figure out what you think that line is. But, and, and we think it's silly now, but we do it every single day in our life. Like, can I ha- can, like, like can I ha- how much can I drink before it's actually considered drunkenness? Or how long can I look at another person before it's considered, you, you, you know, lust? Or how long can I look at somebody else's things and look at how shiny their life is before it's considered envy? And we don't phrase it that way in our head, but we think to ourselves, oh, no, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. Rather than taking a look at verse 28 and recognize, man, Jesus, you've taken care of everything. Thank you so much. I'm going to do my best to walk away from that line because, Jesus, you've handled everything for me. And we need to get to a point where we don't care about where the line is because we're so infatuated with where Jesus is. So all that to be said, I'm going to tell you where the line is now, okay? You shouldn't care about it, but we're going to talk about it. Okay, so verse 29. Because we jump to that, right? We should be focusing on verse 28. But verse, verse 29, Jesus covers all of these sins except one. He says, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that God will forgive all persons of all sins except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if you're new to church or you've been a part of church for 30 years and you're too embarrassed to ask what blasphemy actually means, it simply means to speak sacrilegiously about God. Okay, in this instance here, blasphemy against holy the holy spirit like like these people they dishonored god by assigning god's power to satan okay that's what they're doing here that's how they are blasphemy against the spirit the holy spirit is moving and working in the life of jesus and they're saying nope that's not god that's not the holy spirit that's satan that's how they're blaspheming against the Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. Giving, giving the Holy, or giving when, when the Holy Spirit is doing work, when the Holy Spirit is moving, giving credit to Satan instead of the work of God. And we think, Hold on, I mean, is that really? Man, that's that. Think about if you are God in this instance, and a lot of you think you are anyway. So let's just let's just you know take that platform for a second, okay? So uh, you're God. What could be harder? What could be more hateful? What could be more sinful? If you are God, the most powerful being, you created all of existence, you created everything, you've now sent your son to do your bidding, to do your work, he's gonna die on a cross for all of humanity's sins, both then and forever. And some religious leaders walk up and said, you know what, no, that's not God. That's actually God's sworn mortal enemy. That's Satan, that's sin himself. That's who that is. So we consider, is that really, that's the unforgivable sin? That's it. And let me be clear. You can't do this accidentally. Okay, when I was in sixth grade, I went to summer camp. Okay, it was a great time. Had a camp crush, one one wreck, or at least I assume I did, right? I don't remember. Probably did. And so as I'm there, someone had talked about this idea of the unforgivable sin and I was a wreck the entire week. I was fretting over this idea of like, oh my gosh, what is the unforgivable sin? Like can I accidentally commit that? Like I've been told my whole life at Merced First Baptist Church that that Jesus forgives all of my sins and I just have to accept it in my heart and I'm gonna go to heaven one day. Like now all of a sudden someone's throwing this unforgivable sin line at me. So I asked my counselor and he was like, well, and hemmed and hawed, and he didn't give me a straight answer. Asked another counselor, asked my youth leader. I couldn't get a straight answer all week, probably because they didn't know. That's okay. No blame to them. But I was a wreck until I came home. I talked to my parents about it, and they said, well, let's look at it. So we looked at it. We figured it out, and I was like, whew. Okay, so I'm good? I'm clear? Like, yeah, you're clear. Because not only is it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in this one instance, it's a continuation of doing so. It's over and over and over. It's habitual in the way that these religious leaders were doing it. The way it could be translated is they kept on saying it. And so you can't accidentally fall into this sin. Okay, this is is you doing your best to attribute what God is doing to Satan, Okay? So, everybody good on that? But we should be looking at Jesus, not worrying about that, even though everybody's like, okay, good, I can't accidentally do that. So, then Jesus's family comes back onto the scene after that. So, he has this whole dust up with the religious leaders, and then starting in verse 31, Jesus comes back, or his family comes back. It says, then Jesus's mother and brothers arrive, standing outside, and they sent someone in to call him. Okay, let's press pause for a second. Any parents out there ever like send their kid into someone else's house because you don't want to go in? You're like, hey, older brother, go get that person, right? Like my oldest two kids do so much stuff that I don't want to do. I'm like, hey, Cooper, Micah, go take care of that. Okay, yeah, sweet, done. So that's essentially what I feel like is going on here. Okay, Jesus, like Mary is like, hey, can you, hey go get Jesus for me. Um, anyway, verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, Jesus, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the hard portion of Scripture this morning. And Jesus' disciples were among those seated in a circle around him. These are people who were learning from him, people who were wanting to do the will of God, and despite all of their failures, Jesus acknowledged these people as as those who did God's will. Therefore, he considered them his true family. More important than his actual family, his flesh and blood family. And so Mark, remember, the, the book of Mark is written to Gentile readers, meaning not Jewish readers, so everybody everybody else, and modern Christians as well. We should feel good when Jesus uses that word whoever. That's very inclusive language. It's not just Jewish people because of the fact that you were born into a Jewish family. You are God's chosen people. It's whoever does the will of God. So that's good news. If you have said yes to Jesus, you are a whoever doing the will of God, so you are a part of of God's family. But it'd be hard to think of a more meaningful symbol than being a part of the family of God and, and part of his son's family as well. And don't twist words here. Don't twist Jesus' words here to, seem, to, to make Jesus think that familial ties don't matter, that familial ties have no, have no value, right? It's clear these, these relationships are important. Throughout Scripture, it talks about familial relationships and their importance, That's why we want our kids' ministry to be great here. That's why we want our student ministry to be great here. We want to care for the entire family here. Jesus here is teaching something hard, though, something very, very difficult that we need to wrestle with. Jesus is teaching that familial relationships should be subordinate to spiritual ones. And I just want to sit in that for a second, because that's a hard teaching for us here at FBH where so many people bring their families to, there's so many generations of people here, of grandmas and great-grandmas and moms and daughters and all of those same things on the boy side, right? Like, 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 families matter to us, deeply. But Jesus here is teaching that familial relationships should be subordinate to spiritual ones. This is a, this is a radical teaching. Not just for today, but back then, it would, have been, it would have been incredibly radical. It's a hard word that Jesus is throwing down because it seems to threaten the most important human institution, as it should. Right? You can't get mad at me. This is Jesus talking. I'm just telling you what he taught. He is saying that those who are doing the will of God are now more important than those who are outside of that belief system. And I think a lot of us would say, yes, I agree with that because we're good Christians. And we would say, my list of priority goes, God, family, everybody else, right? That's what we would write down. But what Jesus is saying here is, let's assume that I have a son who's not walking with the Lord. Heaven forbid, I hope that never happens, but let's assume I have a son who's not walking with the Lord. And I also have a a member of, of, of our family of God, our church, member of our church, over here, who's very, very much so doing the will of God. And both of them come and ask me for $1,000 out of my pocket, my personal bank account, not the church. They're asking me as dad and, and, and friend. And they both need $1,000 for the same thing. I mean, who are you giving it to? I me. Mean, if it's me, then go get a job. I'm going to give it to my son. That's not what this is saying, actually. This is saying that this relationship is more important than this one, that this relationship with the person who is doing the will of God is more important than my familial relationship with my son, that when the two are in the crosshairs against each other, the family of God should win. That's hard. That's difficult, because I know a lot of you are sitting next to your spouses right now. I know a lot of you are thinking about your kids right now, but that's what God, that's what Jesus here is teaching. And I think most of us would assume, like, yeah, I'm going to choose my kid. And I think Jesus is is kind of responding to what happened in those first couple passages in in 21 and and following, in his confrontation he had with his family earlier, where they wanted him to stop what it was that he was doing because shame was being brought upon their house right? But when you decided to follow Jesus, and I mean actually decided to follow Jesus, like you made Jesus Lord of your life, hear this, that you made a choice to elevate the family of God above your own family. The family, is God and more is the family of God is more important than your flesh and blood family, is what Jesus is teaching here. Now, don't get me wrong. We have a responsibility to our own personal families. Okay, that, is our, that is our job. When there is a crossroad, though, between our family and serving the family of God, Jesus is saying in this story that the family of God and doing his will is more important than what your family wants you to do. Jesus sitting and teaching and being with the family of God, being with those disciples, was far more important than whatever mom wanted at the door. And that's difficult to wrap our heads around. And all of us would say, and and, and I agree with it, like God loves the family. God created family, like I said in the beginning. All throughout Scripture, families are given the task of rearing children in the Lord. Husbands and wives are commanded to be faithful to one another, children to honor their parents. Paul actually writes, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. But in the Gospels... We find a little bit of a mixed bag of instructions about family in some places like Matthew 15. Right? Jesus appears to be pro-family, questioning the Pharisees' commitment to honor your father and mother. But in other places, he kind of seems anti-family. For instance, probably the hardest teaching in this in the book of Luke 14, verse 25, excuse me, verse 26, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate. Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple." <sighs> That's crazy to us. That's crazy to us. The meaning of Jesus' statement in Luke would have been really challenging to his first-century audience, like even more challenging probably than to us. Because like I said before, like this ancient Mediterranean society was like had this strong group culture, the health, and the survival of the group took priority over the goals and the desires of individual members. So, loyalty to family constituted the most important relational virtue for people in the New Testament world. That was it. But following Jesus means belonging to two families. It means belonging to a natural family and a faith family, a spiritual family. And unlike his surrounding culture, what is most important to Jesus is his faith family. In Matthew 12, that's a parallel to this passage. He talks to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And he was pointing to them, is what it says. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus calls Jesus' call to join a new family generates this unavoidable kind of loyalty conflict. I think a lot of us right now are just like, but this is my family. This is what I've been taught. This is what I have been, I have been told. Which family do I now owe my ultimate authority to? And most of us, like I said, would rank our priorities probably God, my family, and then my church. The family of God. And I say an FBH, the family of God. I don't like whatever, with our church, Universal, capital C Church, the family of God, and then everybody else. But both Scripture and Christian history, it reinforces the idea that the family of God should rank higher than the natural family. And Jesus didn't primarily call individuals into a private relationship with him. He calls us to join a movement to become part of that that new family The notion that loyalty to God could somehow be separated from loyalty to to God's family would have been foreign to Jesus and early Christians. So like when people say things like, oh yeah, I believe in God, I just don't believe in the church, or I don't go to church. There's a bunch of sinners, you know, all of that stuff. Man, first century theologians would have had a field day with that statement. Actually, there's a dude in the third century, his name is, uh, he's a, a theologian, Cyprian of Carthage. I wish we still referred to people like that. Like, my name would have been like Anderson of Fairview, right? That would be awesome. But Cyprian of Carth- Carthage said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God for his father. Mm. That means there's two, there's two loyalties there, right? There is God, and then there is the church of God. He doesn't even mention our families. Doesn't mention it anywhere, as a matter of fact. And so while our natural families are still the most significant earthly relationships we have, we have to learn to kind of situate our natural families under the overarching rubric of the family of God. Not as like these distinct social entities where it's like, I'll take care of my family over here and I'll take care of my church over here. No, your family should fall under the umbrella of the church. So your family, as you care for them, you are also caring for the family of God and vice versa. As you're caring for the family of God, you are also caring for your flesh and blood families. And so if, if when they are in tension, when they are in conflict with one another, if we don't put the family of God first, we can stunt the ministry of the church by inadvertently ignoring different members of our church family. And that's why we put such a high value on relationships Right? We know we're, we're, we're a, a medium-sized church, and so people can get lost. People can fall through the cracks. It is impossible for me to have a relationship with every single one of you. It is impossible for Jeff to have a relationship with every single one of you, or Kyle, or whomever is on staff. It's just not feasible. It's like, okay, well, well what do we need to do? We need to make sure that people are in relationships with one another so that they are cared for. That's why we push small groups so hard. That's why we want to make sure that when people come through our doors, Jeff and I have a conversation probably every single week about how to make people feel more welcome as they come in here. And it's usually like our answer is usually more caffeine and more donuts, right? But how can we make people feel more loved as they come in? Or even our diaconate is meeting today to to figure out how it is that they can care more for the people that they are responsible for. Relationships are huge. So the question today is really where do your priorities lie? That's the question we have to come to. That's what we have to sit with. And I'll land the plane with this and then with the communion because I know you guys are looking at your watches. I was confronted with this exact thing when I was 18 years old, technically 19 years old, but the story starts when I was 18. I was 18, I was at a summer camp um, and uh, the speaker of that camp said to me, or not me, he, he preached to, to everybody and felt like he was talking to me. He said, if anybody feels like they are called into full-time vocational ministry, I want you to come up on stage, and we're going to pray for you. And so all of a sudden, I found myself on stage. I had never felt the presence of the Holy Spirit more real in my life, and so I made my way up on stage. I was getting prayed for with four or five other people. And I came home, talked to my parents about it. Yeah, cool, great. I was off to college. was going to be a business major, business administration. I was going to do so good. And in my head, I kept wrestling with this idea of like, I was called into full-time vocational ministry, but also I want to be rich. So maybe I could do both, right? I'll be a full-time pastor and own my own business, right? There's 48 hours in a day. I could totally do that. Um, And so it finally came to a head where I was like, obviously that's not feasible for me to be able to do. So when I was 19 years old, I went into my mom and dad's room. My dad was in there and I talked to my dad about it, and I said, Dad, I, I feel like I'm, go- I'm supposed to be a pastor. I feel like I'm supposed to go into ministry. And my dad, I only tell you good things about my dad, right? My dad was like, like any dad would be. My dad was like, you know, anybody can be a pastor. Like, you don't have to be, like, in vocational ministry to be a pastor. Like, you could, you could be a business owner and be a pastor. He was like, You can you can be a mechanic and be a pastor and just started like listing off all those things and he ended with a story about how he just hired somebody fresh out of college for an exorbitant amount of money and he's like, You could do that and be a pastor. And that was hard for me because I had my natural father, my flesh and blood father, telling me, Don't do that. And to his credit, he grew up extremely poor. My dad only wanted to take care of his family, like that was his goal. And so I can't discredit him for wanting him that same thing for me. Okay, but he said, You can do all of these other things. He even said, you know what? I thought I was gonna be a pastor one time too, but I went and I talked to my pastor, and my pastor talked me out of it. <laughs> That's a terrible pastor. <laughs> but he tried to convince me otherwise. And then on the other hand, I have my heavenly father, my spiritual father telling me, no, you need to go into full-time ministry. And my family's had conflict. And so what do I do with that? Because my spiritual father also told me, honor your mom and dad. So how do I honor my mom and dad while at the same time not dishonoring my spiritual father? It's because when those two things are in conflict, spiritual father wins 100% of the time. And it took me years to reconcile that. Years I went back and forth so many different times, like wrestling with God, like, wait, is this my calling? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Because if you're in ministry and it's just a job, it's never gonna work out. It has to be a calling. It has to be what God has for your life. And so, so many times I went back and forth, and what my dad said made a lot of sense. I'm pretty sure I heard my spiritual father tell me what I am supposed to do. Obviously, we know who won. It took years for me to reconcile that and to be able to understand that. And it's not easy. And that's a hard text to learn from this morning because all of you, priority number one, you're going to say it's Jesus because that's what you're supposed to do if you're a Christian. But let's be real. Every single one of us in here would go to bat for our family before our spiritual family every single time. And Jesus is saying, that's not what you're supposed to do. You have it backwards. So I'm going to leave you with that. Where do your priorities lie? Do you love Jesus more than you love your family? Maybe that's a more concise and succinct way to say it. And so this morning, uh, we're going to transition to communion. So I want to invite the band to come up. But as we transition to communion, part of this idea of communion, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, and, and if you didn't get communion elements, you can just raise your hand real quick. We'll have some people come around and give it nice and high so they can see them. Um, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, it says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's what it says. Everybody ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this morning, I want us to examine ourselves, examine our priorities that we have. Who wins? Who do you love more? Your spiritual father or your earthly family? If I'm being completely and totally honest, I think a lot of times in America, our family have become idyllic, idols, idols in our lives, that if I can just have the perfect family, if my kids just won't get out of control, if my, me and my wife can just set the perfect example for everybody, then I will be happy. But anytime we search for happiness, anytime we search for joy outside of God, outside of loving him first and loving him best, man, we fail 100% of the time. And so this morning, I just want, I, I just want to ask you that. Where do your priorities lie? Do you love Jesus more than you love your family? And so I want you to pray about that this morning. The band, they're going to they're sing a song. We invite you to either sing or pray or think or whatever it is that you want to do. And then once the song is over, I'll come back up and we'll receive communion together. But one of the things that we do believe about communion here is we believe in what's called an open table. And an open table essentially means that you don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion, but you do need to be a part of that family of God that we've been talking about. So if you are not a part of the family of God and you want to be, you want to be cared for, you want to be loved in the way that Jesus has set forth here, he says, no, this is more important. This family is more important even than everybody else's flesh and blood family. If that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to make a profession of faith and we can do that right now. So why don't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful for what he did on the cross for us, that even though that we are sinners, even though that that every single day we do our best, maybe we try to do our best to honor you, that we consistently fall short, that there's no amount of good work that that will ever bring us into your kingdom. So God, thank you for sending him. And God, I pray that we would realize what it means to love our spiritual family even more so than our flesh and blood. And God, we know there's tons of different ways to do that, whether it's serving, whether it's giving whether it's using your talents to help grow the kingdom, all those different ways to show that we love the family of God. We love your family that you established for us. You established that relationship for us, that you created family. And so you know what it means to to, to provide that intimacy and love. And God, I pray that our church would be a reflection of that. And if this morning, maybe you have not yet said yes to Jesus, maybe you're not yet a part of the family and you're thinking to yourself, now's the time, I need to say yes. You can pray along with me. You can simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that I fall short daily, but B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins not just the sins that I've already committed, but the sins that I'm going to commit in the future, the sins I'm committing currently, all of them, I believe you sent your son for that. And see, I choose to follow you every single day of my life. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.